Hey, what is going on? Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Your home of the Canucks for now, for the foreseeable future as well. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Live from Rogers Arena on a Canucks game day, but always in spirit, live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The New Jersey Devils are in town, Drancer. It is a strange day today. Like, up is down, right? Yes. The New Jersey Devils are coming to town as an imposing opponent. The BC Lions are in the playoffs. <laughs> And the NFL trade deadline is popping, is popping off. off. Like, I have no idea what's going on today. It feels like opposite day on a Tuesday in Vancouver. It's going to be a fun game tonight. Yeah, I'm really excited for this one to get a look at one of the teams. And look, it's very early going. Obviously, the calendar just flipped over uh, to November here. So we're in the very early stages of the NHL season. But one of the teams that not just with their kind of the top line results and the fact that they're winning games and after they lost the first two, they're going on a run now. But when you start to dig into the, and I'm not even talking about advanced statistics, so just some of the general profile of the New Jersey Devils, this is a fascinating team, right? And it, it, it's Jack Hughes, it's Jesper Bratt, you know, John Marino is a great addition to the blue line. There's a lot of of interesting players that stand out. But the thing that stood out to me more than anything, Rancer, they're out shooting their opponents by an almost two to one margin per game, 39 shots for per game, 21 against both of the best in the league in their respective categories. Like that's pretty rare, even this early in the season to be leading the way in both of those categories. The devils are doing it. We saw the devils last year play two pretty up tempo games against the Vancouver Canucks, a blowout loss in New Jersey, where the Devils chased Yarrow. Yeah, Hawk. that was one of the Halak games. And then a game in which the Canucks chased, I believe it was Nigel Dawes. Is that right? No, Nigel no. Dawes is different. Nico Dawes. Yes. Nigel Dawes was the great uh, KHL sniper who spent a stint with the Calgary Flames. Nico Dawes. And he was replaced by John Gillies. And the moment John Gillies came in, JT Miller uncorked like one of those mean slap shots on him on the rush and quickly scored. And, and at that point, it was over. Game. So both games between the Canucks and the Devils were really punctuated last year by a ton of offense and a ton of weird stuff in net. This Devils team, though, has grown up a little bit. Like, if you watch them play early in the season, one thing that the Devils failed to do a single time during the 2021-22 campaign was win a regulation game without scoring at least three goals. That's wild, eh? Like, Mm. that's almost hard to do over the course of an 82-game stretch. The Devils did it now. They're coming into Vancouver having won three such games in a row, including some really impressive performances. Uh, You know, a 7-1 demolishing of the Columbus Blue Jackets, one of the most lopsided 5-on-5 games that we've seen in decades. Honestly, like 15 years, according to some models. And a 1-0 win over the Colorado Avalanche, which is sort of the key thing that I recommend Canucks fans watch tonight. When we've seen the Devils in the past, they've had speed. And we've talked a lot about the matchup issues that they pose for Vancouver as a result. But it was immature speed. It was run and gun speed. Now, it feels like they have the sort of speed where they can smother an opponent, right? And just be all over a team, ultimately winning 1-0 the way they did against the defending Stanley Cup champions. That's the thing to watch for tonight, is this team plays aggressively. 
but almost in the Boudreaux ideal mold, they apply pressure, and the result is that it's actually pretty hard to score on them so long as their goaltenders are able to pass the make a single save challenge, a concept which I'm increasingly obsessed with when it comes to the Devils. (laughs) But, you know, it'll be an interesting one from that perspective for sure because this Devils team is new look. They're eating up the league so far. They're not foreign. Like, it's not a foreign concept for this Devils team to start hot and then quickly come down to earth. So we'll see if they can keep it up against a Vancouver Canucks team coming off two consecutive wins. Yeah, the thing with the Devils, though, is there's not a lot of, if you're looking for those kind of telltale signs of, oh, this team is, you know, getting all the bounces early, but they're going to come back to earth. And I'm not saying they're going to be this dominant or as, as impressive as they have been so far all year, but there's not a lot of those signs that you would typically look for. To, to look at a team and say, oh, this is smoke and mirrors. It really does just seem uh, to come down to the goaltending for the New Jersey Devils. And, uh, you know, obviously Mackenzie Blackwood has had his struggles again this year. Vitek Vanacek has been better, not exceptional by any means, but he, he's given them some decent starts. So I, I'm not exactly sure which goaltender we will see uh, tonight at Rogers Arena, but that's certainly something the Bears monitoring. Uh, the other thing I'm going to be watching in this one um, is the special teams battle because the Canucks have kind of quietly, I think, climbed into the top 10 in the league in terms of power play percentage. They're up to 25.8%. Of course, you get two power play goals in back-to-back games. That's going to do early in this early in the season. That's going to do wonders for your percentages. We knew the Canucks power also, play would warm well, up. And also not a coincidence that those are their first two wins of the year, right? Then when all of a sudden you start clicking, you start getting those power play goals and the Devils, on the other hand, have one of the best penalty kills in the league at 93%. So, you know, this is a game where it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for the Canucks to control play. And that's not even a slight at the Canucks, even though they've struggled to do that in a lot of games this year. It's just a recognition of how well New Jersey is doing that. It's going to be a real struggle for the Canucks to control play at 5-on-5 five five in this one. So you have to make whatever advantage you can find elsewhere stick and that. You would figure goaltending with Thatcher Demko set to start. We'll see what what uh, performance we get out of Thatcher Demko, and if you can find it a way, find a way to uh, to win the special teams battle as well. That's going to be really, really crucial because it's going to be tough sledding at five on five tonight. Yeah, it is. Although it does look like the well, no, it doesn't look like the Devils will be without Andres Palat, who's undergoing groin surgery, uh, unfortunately. Um, Sounds like there's no specific timeline on yeah, his return. But in any event, is, is the latest. In any event, that's a big loss for the Devils, considering what he brought. You know, the maturity that I talked about, some of that's a reflection of Palat's game. You want to talk about defending 150 feet from your own net. Palat's the guy to do that. The best pound-for-pound battle winner in the NHL right now is Andres Palat. One of my favorite players to watch. I, I le- legitimately feel like I've been denied an opportunity to enjoy it tonight. Like, it's just, uh, you hate to see it. Uh, and, and we'll see. The Devils, no details yet on who's starting for them, as far as I can tell. Um, so that's the big one to watch for. Blackwood's been shakier than Vanacek in the early going, and the Devils go as their goaltending goes. Not not to the extent that the Canucks do, right. where they need their goalies to steal them games, but they need their goalies to not cost them games outright, and that's been a habit of theirs over the past few years. It hasn't been this week. It's been a fun week for to be a Devils fan, uh, and so we'll see. On the Canucks side, Ethan Bear and Jack Stadnika are poised to make their mm-hmm. debuts. Now, Bruce Boudreaux said during his availability that Brock Besser, Riley Stillman, and Quinn Hughes are all game-time decisions. I spoke with Quinn Hughes in the locker room after um, the skate today. 
Sounded like a guy who was playing. Sounded very much like a guy who was playing. Additionally, the Canucks rinsed or gave one of those rinse skates yeah. to Kyle Burrows, and Jack, Jack Rathbone, and Brock Besser. So while while officially Stillman, Hughes, and Besser are game time decisions, my expectation would be that Besser is out for tonight anyway. Hughes and Stillman return. Ethan Bear and Jackson Nika make their Canucks debuts. Yeah, and that would certainly line up with what we saw at practice, how they operated today uh, with Stillman and Bear being paired together yesterday at practice. I know it was an optional skate today, so they didn't have their full complement, didn't necessarily get you know, an updated picture of what the lines are going to look like and, and who's going to be with who on the blue line. But I would expect it to look pretty similar uh, to what we saw in practice yesterday. So that would be Studnika making his debut alongside Pearson and Hoaglander and Ethan Bear drawing in against Riley Stillman. And, you know, <laughs> for Ethan Bear, uh, and you can say the same thing for Jack Studnika too, as a kind of, uh, you know, potential two-way center. But for Ethan Bear in particular – where there is so much emphasis on what he can do to help this team move the puck more efficiently. Uh, it's a heck of a test, right, against the the extremely up-tempo puck possession, speed. I don't want to say juggernaut because they're not that, but, you know, the, the, the impressive outfit that New Jersey has built. This is a, uh, a really good opportunity, but also a big challenge for even Bear to, to step in and kind of start trying to live up to those expectations and live up to that, that hype a little bit right from game one. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. The <laughs> Yeah, I mean <laughs> so it's a tough go though, right? Because Stanika's or Studnika's only played one game this season, yeah. right? Ethan Bear's Hasn't. played zero. He's been a healthy scratch for twenty one straight. So they're being thrown into the fire for a team that, you know the... I wanna say there's expectations, but there's going to be restlessness if this team doesn't perform well tonight, right? We're still in that stretch where Although the back-to-back wins and that stellar performance against Pittsburgh has given this team some room to exhale, I don't think it's given them meaningful breathing room in terms of how this crowd's going to respond should the Devils come out and play the way they have for much of this week uh, in this building tonight, right? I think that's still going to be a tough environment, and you've got sort of – you're throwing these guys into the fire, as it were, against a really, really good team. So we'll see. You know, we'll see. I I think the thing to watch for was – Stanika, and one thing I've sort of tried to explain to people, particularly in the wake of the Myrenberg reaction, <laughs> the, the the prospect huggers who didn't want to let Myrenberg go, um, Stanika's going to quickly win fans over because he really does have one of those motors. You know, not the he- not he's got some heavy feet. Like I'm not saying he's Tyler Mott out there, but right. he's got he's got the motor and the work ethic that you can't help but root for when you watch him play. Ethan Bear, I'm I'm really curious to see. He's pro- it's going to be understandable if he's rusty. I do think we're going to have to have like ease our way in on on Ethan Bear, not get too worked up or read too much into an errant giveaway, some positioning issues. Like all of that should be expected for a defenseman coming to a new team, particularly when they've gone this long between NHL games. So I think I think with Bear, we really do have to be grading on a curve here. We really do have to cut him some slack as he eases his way into the system, eases way eases his way back into being a regular. And, you know, with Stanika, I, I suspect that he's just going to win fans over really quickly with the work rate. But, but again, you know, is that line going to be fourth line minutes, as you pointed out yesterday? I think you're probably right, right? Like, I, I wouldn't be a stunner to see that team, uh, that line play sparingly mm-hmm. over the course of the game, particularly rel- uh, relative to the Pod Coles and 
Amon line, which, you know, we've seen how much Bruce Boudreau trusts that trio. And the other point with Bear is I would expect he's going to be eased in a little bit as well. Like, he's probably going to skate on the third pair with Riley Stillman, who's, you know, returning to the lineup as well. We know, you know, Boudreau's very comfortable with the top four of Hughes, Shen, OEL, Myers, even with the way OEL is playing, even with Quinn Hughes coming back after a bit of a layoff. Like, those guys are going to play an awful lot. I think it's going to be more about picking uh, picking the spots with Ethan Bear. Yeah, this team needs to be comfortable with those guys. I mean, make no mistake, sort of the unsung force behind the Bruce, there it is, Canucks run, was the level that Myers and Oliver ekman Larson played at, particularly defensively. And they haven't been able to continue that this season, which, you know, honestly, isn't a, it shouldn't be a huge shock considering their relative, their age, right? But also considering the fact that neither had been at that level defensively in four or five seasons prior. I mean, they've both been at that level defensively in campaigns previously, but they were, you know, 26, 25, 24 during some of those seasons. So, you know, it really was out of line with their recent form. I, I would say they have done more than come back to earth to this point as a pair. But if you're Bruce Boudreaux, you still need to count on that group. Now, you you can relax their minutes a bit because you do almost surely have Quinn Hughes mm-hmm. returning tonight. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help, right? Quinn Hughes is going to eat a ton of minutes. Curious to see what he looks like. You know, he's been talking a lot about the way that injury lingered, right? That he clearly was banged up in training camp. He missed all that time with the illness, but also was clearly, you know, injured. Battled through. Didn't look right, right? He really didn't look right when you watched him play in those four games when he was just, like, absolutely milking a ton of ice time from from the games. But yeah, he, he didn't look like Quinn Hughes. Right. Yeah. He, he didn't He didn't hit the impossibly high bar that is, didn't look, you know. He didn't, looking, looking like Quinn Hughes is an extremely high bar that yeah. he set for himself, and he didn't look like he, it. He didn't look like the best puck mover on the, on the planet, right? I mean, but he didn't. You're right. You know, he really didn't. We'll see what he looks like tonight. This team needs, you know, what's the logic for this team go, getting on a run, go, getting hot, right? What's the logic of this team making the playoffs? Lights out power play. That's come along, right? Quinn Hughes has to be, you know, uh, like Nightcrawler in the X-Men. He has to be able to just sort of look <laughs> down the ice and then be there, right? He's got to be at that level. Um, we know what Thatcher Demko needs to be able to do, right? He needs to be the Wayne Gretzky's 3D hockey brick wall. Yeah. Uh, at least occasionally. Uh, probably for months on end, to be totally honest with you. Like, th- those are some of the things that need to fall into place. Some of it is. Some of it we're still waiting on. And then How Hughes he, and looks the, tonight. And the other thing lights. I would add to that list is lights out Elias Patterson, which we're seeing. That's That's been the kind of the thing that's been there. The only thing of that ingredient list that's been there from day one of the season and has been there consistently is lights out Elias Patterson. As you said, maybe we're starting to see some signs of the other ones coming along. But, yeah, you're right. If you're going to get truly hot and not just, you know, hey, they went 500 for these 10 games and, like, they stabilized after that tough start. Like, if you're going to get truly hot and make the playoffs a discussion, you need all of those things clicking. And Quinn Hughes's absence from that list was really, really glaring to start the season. I I would add, you know, Pedersen's last two games have probably been his least impressive. But, I mean, again, that's a really high bar, right? He was just absolutely destroying things for seven games. Then the Canucks win a couple, and he had big moments, key moments. Especially in the Seattle in, game. In the yeah. Seattle game. But the five-on-five five picking his teeth with, with, a, with opponents, the territorial dominance, that imperiousness with which Pedersen approaches this game when he's on – the way he has been for almost the entirety of this season to this point, um, you know, not quite there. Thing about guys like that, though, 
think about guys like that, they can they can be a little off. And then well, all, they, of, all of a sudden they keep the puck in at the blue yeah, line and send a perfectly weighted backhand saucer pass across the <laughs> across the uh, seam to JT Miller and it's a it's a you know straightforward tap in goal for Andre Kuzmenko another play later. That's whole that's the whole theory of like game breakers, right? Is Hey, okay, this guy, you're not necessarily, you don't have to be dominant every shift, but there's that moment where you can be special, you can use your elite skill, and you break the game open. Yeah, you create you... a play that changes the game. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're saying, like, oh, that wasn't one of his best games, but as you said, like, two key, uh, yeah. one incredible hand eye coordination goal, and then another key high skill play that sets up another goal. Yeah, like, not, not to get too graphic here, but those moments where you smash in the, uh, the game's brain and feast on the delicious goo inside. <laughs> yes, yes. Hey, <laughs> Halloween's over. <laughs> it's November first now. I, have, I haven't used my delicious goo inside line in a while. So I just <laughs> wanted to dust it off. But yeah, it's. I, I think there's a temptation to look at it like, okay, Quinn Hughes is back tonight. Ethan Bear is in the lineup, and like, all right, this is going to be what we're going to see from the Canucks defense. But one. It's against a really tough opponent, and two, I think we have to, as you said, have a little bit of patience with Ethan Ethan Bear. I also think you just need to have at least a little bit of curiosity about where Quinn Hughes' game is at after what we saw early in the season, but I do think it's going to be, you know, what you want to see are those kind of glimmers of, okay, maybe it's not going to be that consistently shift in, shift out, but can you at least kind of spot the upside and say, oh, okay, when Ethan Bear gets a little bit more comfortable, that's how he's going to contribute to this team. That's how he's going to fit in. Do we see some of those moments from Quinn Hughes, even if it's not you know, typical Quinn Hughes excellence uh, for the full 60 minutes tonight? I, I, it's not going to be a referendum on the Canucks defense because there are some extenuating factors, but I think you want to see those signs of progress and say, okay, at least if they have these six guys, maybe you can kind of picture how it's going to be successful, how it's going to look down the road too. For sure. And how quickly can they blend it yep. all together? That's the big question. You know? Now, one thing I found really interesting was I asked Bruce Boudreaux after the skate, you know, is it, you know, how, how has Kyle Burroughs acquitted himself during your injury absences? Because he was talking about the tough decisions he now faces with guys getting back and healthy. And so I just, you know, well, how do you feel Kyle Burroughs acquitted himself? And he waxed on. <laughs> right? Like, he really waxed on quite uh, effusively about what Burroughs has brought to this team, right? How can a coach not like a guy that leaves it all on the ice like that? He's never really played 20 minutes, spent his whole career in the minors, but he's given it his all. Mm-hmm. You know you're going to get it from him every shift. And uh, and he finishes, and, you know, the natural follow-up, although I wasn't in the mood to do it, is, so why are you taking him yeah. out, Bruce? <laughs> so it's the deal. You know, I, I know this market is – really focused on Jack Rathbone's ice time, right? But of the of the players exiting the Canucks lineup on the heels of two back-to-back wins that really strike me as, you know, the team perhaps removing the defender who I'd say has been their second best, best blue liner this season. Like, uh, uh, you know, it's Burroughs. Like, Burroughs yeah. is probably the guy who deserves to be discussed a little bit more, in my view, based on form. Um, as a player that, you know, I'm not sure the Canucks are better without at the moment, right? It's the toughness. It's the work rate. Honestly, it's also the puck moving. You know, there's a lot that Burroughs has brought to this lineup. I I think organizationally he might be pigeonholed as a guy who's just a a third-pair guy. But on form, on ability, on actually doing the things that help you win, he's been really important to this team. Really important. Yeah, and this text came in earlier. And again, 650-650 is the number of text line. What does Burroughs have to do to stick? I thought he's been great. 
yeah, he's been really good. He's done everything they've asked him to do and more. And, you know, it could part of it comes down to a, a numbers thing. I think there's also maybe a handedness thing as well with Stillman drawing in. And then you right now you have Shen, Myers, and now Ethan Bear down the right side. And obviously they've been reluctant to take Luke Shen out of the lineup. You completely understand that because a lot of the same attributes we're talking about with Burroughs, Shen has in terms of the physicality and, and the effort and all that. We also know how he pairs with Quinn Hughes. But – you know, Kyle Burroughs has played on the left side, and the guy that I would be looking at is is Riley Stillman. And that's not to say that he's been bad when he's gotten the chance in the Canucks lineup since he came over in the trade. But again, if you're just focused on winning games right now, I would be leaning towards Kyle Burroughs. And it's not as if with Stillman, you know, with Rathbone, I think you could make the case, hey, we got to get this guy in because he has this certain amount of upside and talent and we need to develop him. We need to give him a chance to grow his game. I'm not saying Stillman has no upside, but I don't really see him in that same way where it's like, oh, man, this guy needs to play. To me, if Kyle Burroughs is playing better than Riley Stillman right now, you put Kyle Burroughs in the lineup. And look, we'll see how Stillman does tonight in the next couple of games, but that's kind of the area where I'm looking at and saying, I'm not sure if Stillman has done enough to – claim a no doubt about a place in the on on the blue line over Burroughs when everyone's healthy yeah I mean I think there's a lot of guys who deserve like uh, you know uh, the only thing I disagree with you on is singling out Stillman as the guy sure for whom that that applies like I think there's a lot of players on this defense core who you could say have it have not performed at the level that he has so you know with Stillman and with Bear though you've paid a big price to get these guys right? A second in Stillman's case, a fifth in Bears. You've taken on money, right? You've taken on risk. You've committed cap long-term to, well, at least over two years for Stillman. And, you know, in Bears' case, sure, the Hurricanes retained to make his cap hit more palatable for this season, but his QO is not based off of the retention number. It's based off of his full cap hit. You have to make decisions on these guys in the next little bit. Burroughs is a pending unrestricted free agent. He's a guy who I think the organization still views as a depth player. Um, so, you know, you got it. You got to if if your bet is you can get more out of Stillman and Bear than the, their other organizations, their previous organizations did, right? If that's your bet, you can't be you can't be sort of frittering around the edges with that. You need to be decisive in giving them that opportunity, the opportunity the club hasn't given Jack Rathbone, right? I mean, that's that's how it is. That's how it is. You've you've rolled those dice now. You can't take it back. You can't be half in. You can't be half pregnant with giving these guys an opportunity. You have to go for it now. They have to be mainstays. And that sort of just creates a, a bit of a logjam, although a logjam only when this blue line's healthy, and this blue line is rarely Rarely healthy, healthy yes. So we'll see how and long not, it lasts. And not because of the players, just because yep. of the Canucks. Like it's not a not a, I'm not taking shots at any individual's durability or suggesting any one player is like a band aid or anything. Like I'm just saying we know how many defensemen this franchise historically uses. We know that the moments where it's like, oh, there's a log jam at D never last long, right? Like <laughs> things change quick when it comes to the availability of Canucks defensemen historically. The only thing I get what you're saying about, hey, you acquired these guys and now, and so you got to play them. You got to see what you have there. It does kind of, though, it feels like maybe a little bit contradictory because – isn't this about, you know, raising the standard and putting the best team on the ice and they're still trying to win and go for the playoffs and dig out of this hole? 
is it about that or is it about, you know, well, let's see what we have in these guys in the future, right? Like that that's my only question. I understand, hey, we paid a pick to get Stillman, so we're going to give him the chance here, but I don't know that it should come at the expense. I don't know that there's the upside there to justify it coming at the expense of, again, at per your stated goals as an organization, trying to salvage this season and still trying to push for the playoffs. So it just feels like another one of those instances where maybe there's not that alignment, that kind of philosophical alignment top to bottom. It, look, it's not the biggest deal in the world. We're talking about kind of who's going to draw in as the sixth defenseman uh, on a game-to-game basis. And as you said, look, they're not going to be healthy forever. Uh, there will be opportunities for Kyle Burrows to play, but it just kind of strikes me as, I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't seem to fit with the idea of we're trying to win. We're, you know, we're not going to take a step back. We're not going to contemplate a rebuild or anything. We're going to do everything we can to salvage the season, but because we just after this guy, we, or we just traded a pick for this guy, we want to see what he has uh, for the future. We're actually going to play him over maybe somebody who is uh, playing a little bit better for us. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, that's all I wanted to say on that one. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is a Canucks game day against the New Jersey Devils. Keep your thoughts coming in. The great Jeff Merrick will join us from Sportsnet Hockey Night in Canada. Of course, you hear him on the Jeff Merrick Show here on 650 as well. He will join us to talk all things Canucks. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Jance here with you live from Rogers Arena on a Canucks game day. They'll take on the New Jersey Devils. Another battle of the Hughes brothers with Quinn Hughes looks looking set to make his return to the lineup. Of course, Jack Hughes for the New Jersey Devils. Puck drop is at 7. Pre-game coverage uh, begins at 6 here on Sportsnet 650. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. You can get your thoughts in. Jeff Merrick will join us momentarily here on the line. We'll dig into the Canucks uh, with Jeff as well. And, in fact, right now we are very pleased uh, to welcome. He is the host of the Jeff Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network. You also see him on Hockey Night in Canada. You hear him on 32 Thoughts, our pal Jeff Merrick. Jeff, thanks for doing this. How are you? Quite the business card. What else can I do? Can I sweep up on the way out, please? Uh, Jamie, <laughs> mu- answer, how are you guys doing? We're doing well. You must have, like, comically oversized business cards to fit it all on there, <laughs> Jeff, okay, all the, of the different the, roles yeah, that you do. Cl- clown, clown car of business cards, yeah. yeah. Well, I figure, like, there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of things here. Part of it is job security, and the other yes. is what I like to call the uh, the bicycle theory of sports media in Canada, and that is if you keep pedaling really fast, you won't fall off, and two – if you spread yourself out in a lot of different departments, it makes it really difficult to fire you. It's like, <laughs> ah, we could punt Merrick, but it'll affect too many different departments. I, trust me, this is, this is very strategic on my part. <laughs> that is some, some very, very welcome words of wisdom, Jeff. And I do have to ask you, you know, you're into your second year of the, the Jeff Merrick show, right? Every day here on the Sportsnet yeah. Radio Network. When they pitched yeah. you on the show... Did you think you'd be talking about the Vancouver Canucks quite as much as you've ended up doing yes. so? Because it seems yes, like yes. almost every day, you and Freege, yeah. uh, there's some sort well, of Canucks tidbit to get into. Uh, inevitably, yes, of course, right away. The first thing I thought of was, I don't want to call it the Jeff Merrick Show. Like, if you're going to call it the Jeff Merrick Show, why don't you just call it, oh, look, there's my navel. I want to call it <laughs> Rink Fries. And if you want, like, Rink Fries with Jeff Merrick or something like that. But I didn't want to call it, like, or me looking at myself in the mirror on radio. 
but that was a fight that I lost. Uh, you choose the hills, right, boys? You choose the hills. Uh, I wanted to call it rink fries because who doesn't enjoy rink fries? Um, so good. But, yeah, I, I, I kind of had a feeling I'd be talking a lot about Vancouver. You know, when I started it, it was it was the Jim Benning uh, regime, and now that has changed, and I kind of had a feeling that we'd be discussing uh, a lot about Vancouver. Plus, I mean, it was like I, I try as much as I can. To, I mean, the, the, the main markets that were on, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and Halifax. So I try to touch on as, as many topics in those three as possible while trying to still stay as current with the big stories around the NHL. So long-winded way of saying, yes, I did have a good <laughs> feeling. I'll be talking plenty about the Vancouver Canucks. Lots of good Josh Dumai talk on the Jeff Merrick show. Hey, um, <laughs> Jeff, you know, thinking about the two years and the focus yeah. on the Vancouver Canucks, what's yeah. the biggest difference you notice, or is there a difference, in how the club is discussed today within the industry and around the league versus how they were discussed a year ago? Oh, that's a great question. Well, it's interesting because it's kind of been, like, it's kind of been a bunny hop, hasn't it, Drancer? Like, initially there was this movement towards, you know, there needs to be a change, and whether it was going to be the coach, whether it was going to be the general manager, whether it was going to be both, and both, you know, ended up, you know, picking up pink paper in the fax machine. And then there was that sense of optimism, and we took two bunny hops forward. And there's Bruce, there it is, and the winning streak, and everyone's feeling good, and this is fantastic. And there was that, that optimism, and now it's been the bunny hop back. So really... I mean, if I could use a crude analogy, it's kind of been like a toilet seat at a stag and doe. It's been up and down and up and down. So it's not like really been one real way to, to grasp this thing. It's kind of like the, I was saying this to a friend of mine a while ago about, about covering Vancouver. And listen, you guys do it more thoroughly than I do. You're right there. But I always say it's like, it's like kind of grab a handful of water. Like, good luck, because this thing is, is always changing. So any answer that I kind of give you right now could change in five minutes, could change after the first period of the Devils game tonight, could change after the third period of the Devils game tonight, could change tomorrow. That's To be honest with you, that's part of the charge and part of the thrill about covering Vancouver right now is I kind of feel, and maybe you guys get the same feeling as well, that we're sort of been constantly on the verge of, quote-unquote, something happening. Yeah. And I know there's this sort of element of waiting for Godot, and is he going to show up? And is he gonna, like We're sort of waiting for that that to happen and i think that's part of the thrill of it so i, I can't really do like the the snapshot in time for you drancer of, of of what you know what what's di- what's different about the two because it always it's kind of felt like for the last two seasons the connects have been on the precipice of quote unquote something big happening or a new direction being sort of charted here i think there's a lot of balls in the air and we're just sort of you know waiting for something to tip How's that for a way to describe it? Well, and to your point about, you know, sort of anticipation and constantly kind of digging through all these different tidbits and and smoke signals to see what we can glean, you know, over the last 10 days, Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin have been kind of making the rounds, right? First with Rutherford on After Hours and Alvin's been speaking to the media here. I know Rutherford's been giving interviews as well. Do you feel like you've gotten any more sense of certainty about the direction of the team based on listening and reading to what they've had to say. And, and I guess I would also add just what has kind of stood out to you about the various comments from the Canucks uh, top decision makers. Well, one thing that I found really interesting was how, you know, after Rutherford was on after hours and that got a lot of attention, like this is Rutherford. We've all, you know, covered Jim for a number of years. And we know that when, 
You know, uh, someone asks Jim a question, he's going to give them an answer. And whether it's, you know, an uncomfortable answer, you're going to get an answer out of, out of Rutherford. And it was some of the most compelling television. And I've always been a huge fan of, of After Hours to begin with. But it was some of the great, the best television we've seen in a while. And, and Rutherford obviously was very generous with, you know, his opinions and sharing his time. And he could have said, no, I don't want to do this. We're going through a horrible situation right now. Please, let's have some respect for, for us. But, like, J- Jim did it. What I found really interesting was that started to obviously pick up, like, right away everything, you know, Rutherford trending on Twitter, et cetera. And then it seemed like five minutes later, Patrick Alvin came out just, just to sort of remind people who the GM was here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yep. I found it interesting, like, sort of how quickly the two – both tried to get out in front here as like, we all understand how the dynamic works. Right. But I just thought it was interesting how Alvin got out almost right away after, uh, after Rutherford. It's um, I, I don't know that I'm going to have a handle on the, the direction of this team. Like, honestly, like right now I'm using Bo Horvat as, uh, as the, uh, uh, as, as the judging stick here. Like what's the decision on Bo Horvat? Like, is that going to give us any indication uh, as to which direction this team is going, to me it kind of does. I mean, it's a it's a difficult spot here for for Horvat. He's the captain of the team. We all know about the struggles in October, um, and he's got the contract, you know, perhaps weighing on him uh, and his agent Pat Morris in the back while they try to you know help shepherd this this team along. You know that that to me is is the one curiosity. I know there was a lot of you know, eyebrows raised about, again, the JT Miller, you know, c- contract signing, and that's been gone over so many times that I don't want to bore anybody with it right now. I've kind of moved on to the Horvat decision and the Horvat situation. And, you know, is there a chance he doesn't resign with Vancouver? Is there a chance that they have to move him come trade deadline? Um, that, that to me is sort of the, the one person that I'm using as, and maybe, you know, maybe wrongly as, as an indication of which way this, which direction this team is going to go in. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a useful bellwether in that for a team that's spoken sometimes like they're rebuilding and sometimes like they're, uh, you know, all in, uh, the Horvat decision is going to tell us a lot. Meanwhile, he's got six goals in nine games, Jeff. What, what are you seeing from Horvat in terms of his form? Are you enjoying contract year Bo Horvat as a force? <laughs> well, let's not forget, too. I mean, like I, I know we always joke, you know, Doug Armstrong told 60 people they were making Team Canada last year after the tournament got scrubbed. <laughs> but he, 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 he was in consideration, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he was, he was going to be one of those guys. Um, like it's hard. Like, first of all, I'm, I'm really impressed that through all of this, because let's not forget, too, like I know you know, players will always say, well, I'm not thinking about the contract. I'm not considering the negotiations. You know, I'm not calling <laughs> yeah. Pat every five minutes to find out where we're at. And that's great. You know, that's, that's fine. But to be honest with you, Drancer, Jamie, you know, sell that to the tourists. You know, I'm a local. <laughs> you, know, we, we, you, can, you can sell that to the, the people that want the novelty items when they travel. Like, I'm, I'm one of the locals here. Like, it, it does weigh on you. And to be quite honest, like, I'm really impressed at how that doesn't seem to have affected Horvat at all. Like, you know, when, when an agent will say, well, he's not really worried about the contract. He just, you know, he's just putting his head down and he's playing. Horvat is. Yeah. Like, it's, to me, this is, this is a remarkable, like, outside of the actual numbers and the performance and the, the face-off percentages and, you know, how he's, you know, helped JT, JT Miller specifically this season uh, get out of his, his early season funk. Like, the fact that this guy's able to just you know, bite down on the mouth guard and play like this when he has all of this swirling around to say nothing about, 
you know, valuable and expensive airtime dedicated to him and his contract and his future. It's an instant audit on his, on his entire career. I, I think it's commendable. Like I, I kind of come at it. I've always said, yeah, I don't cheer for teams that cheer for people, but Horvath's one of those guys. So I mm-hmm. kind of come at it from a little bit of a bias because I really like the player and, and I, and I always have going, going back to his, his junior days. But to me, the performance through October has been really remarkable considering everything that's, you know, all the, all the, 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 the twisting wind around Bo Horvat right now. When uh, the audience in Vancouver is going to love this quick anecdote, but I got to tell it to you in the context of sure. selling it to the tourists. But when I graduated uh, from university in Toronto into a, a wrecked economy, the only job I could get was seasonal bus tour guide work in the city Ooh. of Toronto. And to keep it interesting for myself, I'd make stuff up and see what I could get people to believe. <laughs> and one of my favorites was we'd go down McCall and Queen, right by Oakland. I know it, yep. Yeah, and yep. Uh, you know how there's uh, all the above-ground wiring, right? There's like just a, such yeah. a thicket uh, because yeah. of the sort of nexus for the streetcars. And I'd point up at it, and I'd say, this resembles a raptor pen from the movie Jurassic Park, and that's where the basketball team gets its name. And all these people oh, would start no. taking, yeah, and all these people would start taking photos of the <laughs> of the power lines. <laughs> My bus driver just cracking up as uh, <laughs> as it happens. Um, you know, I, hang on, by by the way, good for you, bravo. Yeah, just screw, it was a, just that was a good line. Tourists. Like there's a there's a long-standing <laughs> tradition. And it's like, oh, well, you know, they used to fashion the key to the city out of a pickle. And there was a royal designer that would shave the royal, the, 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 the key to the city out of a out of a full sour pickle. And that's how things were done a century <laughs> ago here, back when it was called York, before it was even called Toronto. <laughs> uh, it's so much fun, right? You got to keep it interesting for yourself. So We have to abuse ourselves after all. <laughs> Well, and so on the context, in the context of what you're talking about with Horvat putting his head down, one thing yeah. I've brought up often on this show is mm-hmm. there are guys that are affected by playing in a market like Vancouver or Toronto, right? Yeah. And there yeah. are guys who are not. And Horvat is, you know, I don't know if there's ice water in his veins or what, but he's always managed to toe the line with, you know, a, a level of class, dignity, and honestly, like political savvy. That, that I think yep. is pretty rare. How much would you weight that in Jim Rutherford's uh, shoes in deciding how to proceed with a guy like this? I think that uh, – I'm glad you got there, Trancer, because I think that's huge. And I'm going to throw one other name out at you. And it's a very mm-hmm. unpopular name, and it's a name people are going to maybe wince at when I say it, but but hear me out on this. Please tell me it's As not Mark Messier. No, it's not Mark Messier. Okay. Don't worry, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that direction on you. So, what, what a heel swerve by Merrick Bowen. Well, I was getting worried. On the I was like, let's end this. <laughs> bad line, bad line. Gotta go, gotta go. Um, no, you, you know the name that I think of, and he was a captain in, in a in a Canadian city as well, um, mm-hmm. and from out of town, and did well. And that's Dion Phaneuf. Like the, right. the one thing that I will always say, and 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 you and listen, Trancer, you just said it. Being in a Canadian market, it's hard to be either A, the starting goaltender, and I've always mentioned like the two hardest jobs in Canada, number one is prime minister, number two is the starting goaltender for any NHL team. And maybe the third hardest job is to captain a Canadian hockey team. It's a captain, a Canadian NHL team, and it takes a real special person. And whether you liked Phaneuf, didn't like Phaneuf, he was out there after all the wins and all the losses and all the bad times and faced the cameras and wasn't shy and didn't go back door. And, and even though he probably didn't want to embrace a whole lot of what was happening with him while he was the captain, he never ran from it. And also, you know what, and this is a big one. 
and we kind of see this with the Maple Leafs right now as well, is it didn't bug him, right? Like all the criticism didn't bug him. He was able to shrug it off. And you know who was also great at this? The Sedins. Yeah. Because they heard everything and they took everything. And to me, like my measure of toughness, it's like Margaret Atwood writes in Survival, endurance being able to endure all of it. Like there's a very Canadian thing about, you know, having to, you know, we, unlike the States, we have a, uh, an ethos of endurance because, and survival because there's uh, a geography that's really spread out. Our population is thin. We go through four distinct seasons. We all need to rely on one another in order to survive. And when you look at, you know, captains of, of NHL teams, it is a very special kind of person that can, you know, go through a losing streak and be the captain, go through a contract situation and be the captain and not be distracted by any of it. And as a matter of fact, kind of embrace it as well and be able to shrug off all the criticism and all the abuse that you get both on and off the ice. Like the Sedins were the model. They were the model for it. Um, and I know that I don't want to compare right now anyway, Bo Horvat um, to the Sedins, but I kind of see the same thing. You know, good times, bad times, Horvat's there. Can take, it takes a really special kind of player to be able to, you know, to be a kind of pincushion for fans and just get dark, 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 media, dark, 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 and be able to show up and still have a smile and say, good day, everybody. That's unique. And mm-hmm. not everybody, not everybody is built for that. There's some guys that shrug it off and there's some guys that take it personally. Fenef never took it personally. Horvat never took it personally. The Sedins never took it personally. You know, I had a really interesting chat with Bo Horvat yesterday, Jeff, that had me thinking about the Twins as well. And in the context of, of his playing, actually, which uh, obviously there's no comparison um, in terms of the level that they hit. But sure. there is a thing that can happen with a really hardworking professional hockey player who's smart about their craft, where, where they can figure different things out. And even if they're outside their statistical prime, add something to their game in their late 20s and... Horvat was talking about how, and I found this fascinating, how he saw Bedard's sticks, Connor Bedard's sticks over the course of the summer mm-hmm. from a Bauer rep and started yeah. playing around with a lower flex and has gone to it, has gone to a lower mm-hmm. flex this season. And I've noticed a different level of deceptiveness in his shot. Um, what, what do you think about sort of how that works for guys in, in, terms, okay. of, in terms of that side of the game? That's a this is a this is a pet favorite conversation of mine, Drancer. You 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 got me. You got one of the sweet spots of the bat. Here. <laughs> and I'm serious. Like this is how trivial I am, and uh, and Drancer nails it. So I remember having a conversation. This is years ago, and I've always paid attention to it ever since with Daniel Briere. And we were talking about it's funny. We were talking about stick flex, and he said, "Well, mine changes all the time." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" Like I thought guys like. You know, I have a 110, and that's that's my flex, right? You know, Zdeno Chara has a crowbar as a hockey stick, like a 125 <laughs> or something. I use like a, I use like a 110. And he said, I can't remember what it was. It was like I have like a when I start the season, it's a 110, and then midway I got to go down to a 95, and by the end of the season, I'm at like an 80 or something. I can't remember the example. But, he, but what he said was, throughout the season, you lose strength. Like that's just a natural thing, and you need your stick to be able to do more work for you. You need to be able to to be able to you know use your stick because you're not going to have that strength to fire anything that has a flex that's any higher than 95 or 100 and whatever. And that always stuck with me. And the idea of being able to to use the the flex of your stick for a deception. You know, you know who the big guy 
you know, you should have him on because he's a, he's a great guest. And if you ask him about sticks, you can just, you can just like put your feet up, turn the microphones off because your show is done. Just say Adam <laughs> sticks. Uh, that's Adam Oates. The first thing that Adam does with every team, and you can imagine how much this would have drove, driven Ovechkin crazy. The first thing he does is he goes to the stick rack and says like, Nope, you got to change your pattern. Nope, you got to change your pattern. Nope, this stick is too short. And we'll go through. And you know how guys are very specific about their sticks, right? Um, but his his whole philosophy is, you know, much in tune with, you know, Dran, so what you're talking about, about allowing flex to work for you. But mm. also his big thing, and this may be lost with the, the way sticks are manufactured now. This is more back within in the wooden stick days. You know, I've had conversations with Adam where he's talked about the art of the lie of the sticks. And Adam's big thing is, how the lie of the stick can predict concussions because the lie of your stick dictates how upright or how hunched over you are. So like, trust me, man, like I am fascinated with all this and I will listen to players, uh, you know, current and X talk about, talk about their sticks, whether it's the flex, whether it's the lie, whether it's, you know, how they put their hand on the stick, which is another big one for Adam Oates. Like he will practice like no joke guys. So I remember talking to Adam in the second round of the playoffs, and there was one game where someone came over the blue line and just got the, – I can't remember who the player was. It just got destroyed. It was like it might have been a Truba hit or something. I can't remember. And I was talking to Adam, and he's like, pull over. And I pulled over and said, call up the hit. So I'm calling him on the side of the road, like, what's, what's going on with my life? I'm talking to Adam Oates, and he's making me do video on my phone. Um, I'm in Keswick, Ontario, doing video with Adam Oates. And he said, what did you see? And I said – I don't know. I just saw a guy step over the blue line and get, and get destroyed. He goes, no. Did he have two hands on the stick? And I said, well, no. When he carried it over the blue line, he didn't, but then he put his bottom hand on. And he said, well, where were his eyes when he put the bottom hand on the stick? And I said, geez, Adam, I have no idea. I have no idea. I went back and watching it, and I go, well, he looked down briefly and then looked up, and he got closed on. He goes, Exactly. He said, when you're skating over the blue line, you have to have two hands when the, when the, when the, when the defenseman is closing gap. He says, and he works with like Eichel and Scheifele, like, you know, the clients that yeah. Oates works with. He said, you know, we will spend, as boring as this is, we will spend time, I will spend time with the guys practicing putting your bottom hand on your stick. You don't even realize it, but for a split second, you look down. It's just an instinct, and you got to get it out of their games, or else that can happen. I'm telling you, man, if you guys want a great guest to talk about sticks, get Otsi on. He is the finest. But anyway, does that resonate with me, the, the stuff about Horvat and the, and the flex? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, think that, I think that there are more players that are probably in, in tune with that than we probably know. Like, do you know the Jeff Sanderson story? No. Okay, so Jeff Sanderson. So the great story about him is he would <laughs> – right. Now – you know, maybe, maybe ask one of the trainers that was there when, 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 when Sandy played there, when Sanderson played there, because he would have, I remember asked his son about this at the, the combine, well, the virtual combine, because it was COVID time, and he said, wow, I, I never knew this about my dad. So he would have three different sticks for every game, and it would all be different lengths. There'd be one that would sort of be at his nose for the first period, a little bit shorter for the second, and even shorter for the third. And the reason was, he would get tired by the third time the third period rolled around and he needed a stick that forced him to bend his knees more. So he, you know, by the time the third period rolled around, he couldn't just, you know, coast with a, with a tall stick. He had to have the stick that much shorter because it would force him to keep his knees bent. 
I love stuff like that, Drancer. I am that trivial. <laughs> Jeff, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> Just before we let you go, um, yeah. <laughs> Canucks welcome the New Jersey Devils to town tonight, and yep. you know they've gone from fire Lindy to torching the rest of the league <laughs> here. What's what's standing out to you yeah. these days when you watch the Devils? Nico Heischer, first of all, uh, Drancer, great piece uh, about the Devils Blue Line and and Vancouver today in the Athletic. I read it. That was the first thing I read when I woke up this morning. That was excellent. Thanks, um, number number two, the thing that stands out to me is the same thing that stood out to me for a few years now, and that's Nico Heischer. And Nico Heischer, provided he stays healthy, um, has Selkie trophies in him. And I think that the New Jersey Devils, for the past few seasons, have always had you know wonderful underlying numbers. The problem was they couldn't get a save. And we all said the same thing. If only this devil team could get a save, this would be a team that would make the playoffs. Like they are right there. And specifically to transfer's point today, um, with this blue line, they are there. And with a healthy Nico Heischer, they are there. And with a Jesper Bratt, who is going to get a bajillion dollars uh, at the end of the season <laughs> on a long-term deal, who's now top five in scoring or top six or seven in scoring in the NHL. Um, he looked fantastic, but to me, the guy, the guy is Nico Heischer. Like I swear, like Heischer is, is Swiss for Bergeron. Like that's the way this guy is playing. He's just next level, two hundred foot guy. Doesn't matter if he puts up points, although he is a, a point per game player uh, for the Devils. Uh, to me, I, I I can't get my eyes off this guy. To me, he's the best player hands down on the New Jersey Devils. Full stop. Yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of entertaining guys to watch when they come through town with Hughes and Bratt, but uh, as you said, he's up there he on sure. that list as well. Jeff, that was great. We always really appreciate it. Uh, we'll let you get back to one of your other two dozen jobs or so, and ho- hopefully we can chat again soon. I, I really want to apologize for boring people by going on about sticks for like five minutes and sucking up airtime. I'll try to be more entertaining next time. No, but no, that's, no. that's kind of a passion of mine. Dran- Drancer knew what he was doing when he brought up the stick. Don't worry. He he, he was laying the trap for you, so, Jeff. And and look, and look, people come to yeah. our show for the technical stuff, and I'm not going to talk flex the way you can. So I'm trying to bring the good stuff to the people. Hey, by the way, Adam Oates uh, used the old Sherwood. Yep. When he DMPs, played. baby. Yeah, DMP, he, uh, right? Apparently, apparently he'd break. Peter Bonder told me this this week. I, I had Peter Bonder on the phone this week. He told me that Adam Oates uh, intentionally would break um, a blade of his stick as part of his pregame routine every game. He'd intentionally saw saw the blade off of one stick every, before every game they played together. Is this like the, the hockey equivalent of like sacrificing a chicken to get out of a, out of a <laughs> yeah. batting slump? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's just... <laughs> That's what uh, that's what Bondra told me this week. I was like, "That's a very odd one. I've never heard that." I I am going to text Adam right now with that. <laughs> that's a good one. Enjoy the rest okay. of your day, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, boys. Have a great one. That is uh, the the one and only Jeff Merrick uh, joining us here on Canucks Talk. Uh, you never know. You never know where you're going to go when you get Merrick on the show. That was uh, fantastic. Really enjoyed his thoughts on Bo Horvat as well, uh, which took up a lot of our conversation. Maybe we'll get into some of that. On the other side, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can hit us up with your thoughts and questions ahead of the Canucks game against the New Jersey Devils tonight here at Rogers Arena. More on the way on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, live at Rogers Arena. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and 
Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Uh, coming to you live from the Kintech studio at Rogers Arena, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And uh, the, the compliments and the excitement rolling into the Dunbar Lumber text line after the Jeff Merrick interview there. Uh, Drancer, unsigned one saying the stick stuff was excellent. Uh, another one saying Mike in West Kelowna, that was an awesome interview. Thanks for that, boys. Uh, you never know where you're going to go with uh, with Jeff Merrick, but I do wonder. You know, like we love talking to Merrick, and that was a great interview. It was a joy to have him on the show uh, for his Canucks insights, everything else. A tough guy to nail down sometimes because he is so incredibly busy. I wonder if we just promised every time that we would like ask him some arcane piece of trivia about hockey gear. <laughs> I think that would be. That would be like the carrot that he, to draw him in. He's like, oh, okay. Well, if you're gonna ask me about gloves. Then sure, then I'll come on the show. I mean, gloves guys. are gloves are fascinating. Honestly, there there's go. some there's there some go. there's some really good equipment stories around the league, and they're tough to tell because a lot of guys are secretive about what works for them, right? Um, sure, but you know, like there's well, that's uh, why I mean, a lot of the stories he's bringing up are like retirement stories, right? Guys who are out of the league now, and it's kind of okay. Here's I can spill the secrets of my hockey sticks. I mean, I don't even want to. I don't even want to talk it too great a length here because there's like a white whale angle that I've been sitting on for a little bit. COVID sort of complicated it because I couldn't talk to guys face to face. But there's uh there's there's some really fascinating um, gear stories here. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one quick one before we move All right, on. Let's do it. Mike Hoffman. Mike Hoffman is the most accurate shooter in the league, right? I mean, for a perimeter shooter, a high volume perimeter guy. The thing about Mike Hoffman is he doesn't miss the net. It's wild. It's incredible how often Mike Hoffman hits the net. He's a savant. And when I worked with him with the Panthers, he'd go through all these dashes, which is different launch angles on his on his blade. And he'd have, you know, dash six, dash seven, dash eight, and he'd adjust it based on the handedness of the goalie or, mm-hmm. eight, you know, a whole variety of different – just how he was feeling, what stick was working – um, but he'd have a whole variety of different dashes ready to go on the bench. So you'd never seen a player with so many sticks ready to go, right? Guys have, you know, four or five, but the, he had <laughs> a whole army of them because they all had different blades for different goalies or different situations or if a different guy was passing him the puck on the power play that night. It was really incredible. I'd never seen anything like it, and it actually shows up in the data. He was an outlier in terms of the accuracy with which he always, always hit the net. These guys are amazing. Honestly, NHL players are unbelievable. They really are. And we've talked about this before, but that's something I always, you know, when we're like, well, you know, is is Riley Stillman really uh, going to move the needle as the sixth defense? It's like, Riley Stillman is like a phenomenal, like, it's, it's like impossible <laughs> to even like quantify what an impressive athlete he is. You know uh-huh. what I mean? You're talking to a guy who's kind of at the bottom of an NHL roster, but they're still, which is absolutely blow your mind in well, any other setting. And how tough they are, right? Yeah. I mean, JT Miller playing the next day after blocking that shot in Seattle is mind blowing, right? The amount of pain tolerance that must have taken through the roof. And, and to have like his best game of the year, too. <laughs> Against Pittsburgh, pretty much. Well, and I'd add, I'd add that Brock Besser playing as quickly as he did after surgery, right? And you know the the specific pain tolerance threshold that exists when you're trying to return quickly from surgery in that specific area. If you talk to athletes, right? I mean, think about when your wrist is just like off, 
and then you have to carry groceries, and yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah. oh, man, it's kind of just sore. <laughs> you know what I mean, though. You've all, we've do. all been there. I absolutely do. We've all been there. You know, now imagine it being eight times worse than having to play hockey. Yeah. You know? I or mean, you just wake up, and you're like, oh, my shoulder feels a little weird. I guess I slept on it funny last yeah. night. <laughs> Owie. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's honestly, it's it's wild. And then and then and then I get the text like, "Why aren't you crushing Besser's performance? What has he done? He's not fast enough." And it's just like, man, this guy, this guy rushed back from surgery in the three to four week timeline. He beat it by like a week and a half. Yeah. And he still had four points in six games without power play one time or getting to play with Pedersen while playing through an enormous amount of pain. <laughs> what are we talking about? It's wildly impressive. The uh, the other thing that stood out to me from the American interview beyond the the stick chatter was, uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about Bo Horvat, and he, I think, very correctly said that whatever direction things go between the Canucks and Bo Horvat will be a, a really important bellwether and signal as to the direction the team is going, right? If they ultimately do bite the bullet and trade him, if they sign him to a long-term extension, whatever it is, it's going to tell us an awful lot about what the team is thinking. And, you know, the other thing that stood out to me hearing Merrick talk about Horvat, and this is not the first time that I've noticed it, right? Like, he's he's talked about Bo Horvat plenty in the past, you know, the fact that he was going to be in the mix for Team Canada, all of those sorts of things is, I think there's this phenomenon in, especially in Canadian NHL cities, but you could extend this to just really passionate sports fan bases in general. When a player is young, like in their first, second, maybe even third year in the league, there's a tendency, I think, for people in the market to maybe get a little too excited about them sometimes. But then as the player ages, it becomes more and more about picking apart the flaws in their game, and you've seen them so much, you start to you start to get almost more negative than people outside the market are. And it's always really striking to me to hear Merrick talk about Bo Horvat because it just comes across so clearly how much people around the NHL and around the game value what Bo Horvat does and how highly they hold him uh, and, and how they evaluate his game. And, you know, we get texts all the time, all the time, criticizing Bo Horvat, right, for various different things. And yet you talk to somebody outside the market who covers the game, who talks to a lot of people outside of the market, and it's a very different story. And I don't bring that up to say – you know, Merrick is right, and all the people who are criticizing Bo Horvat are wrong necessarily. Like, you're all allowed to have your own opinion about a player. You don't have to agree with what the people outside the market are, are saying. But I think it's an important piece of context as you're trying to kind of understand where this is going. Like, Bo Horvat, we always think, oh, you know, Canadian, Canadian fans, they overvalue their own players. Like, I think this is a situation where people here are undervaluing Bo Horvat and underrating and underestimating how much the rest of the league values him. And as you're trying to kind of discern, you know, what what would a reasonable number be? What are the dynamics that play in this Bo Horvat? I think that's really important to keep in mind. People around the NHL, very, very high on Bo Horvat, by and large. Well, and, and you know, we'll, we'll see how much the cap goes up and we'll see what happens with Larkin. Because those are the two factors outside Horvat or the Canucks' control that will impact his ultimate valuation, right? There's a reality that you hit when you hit unrestricted free agency, and it becomes less about comps and market value and perception and more about what will one person pay, right? Much like much like the housing market. What will the top bidder pay yep. to land a guy's it's services? worth what somebody pays. There's a reality that sets in, and that reality can be cruel or that reality can be eye-popping. And that's sort of what we'll navigate here. And in the meantime... You know, Horvat's put himself with six goals in nine games into a real spot where he's going to be able to chase 30. He's going to well, he's going to get to 30, and he's going to be able to chase 40. And that becomes a very, very different conversation, right? 
Um, Rutherford's commentary, what was it, last week to, to – or this week to my colleague at the Athletic, Pierre Lebrun, was, you know, we have a disagreement. We yep. have a disagreement on exactly where the numbers are. Um, we'll see what we'll see what the league thinks, right? That's sort of one thing about unrestricted free agency. It tests that argument. It gets solved. Much like much like arguing about the result of a game. Like I think the Devils are really good, and the Canucks are in tough tonight, but they have a huge edge in net, right? That te- you know, if I predict that the Canucks will win tonight, well, there's going to be a game that will have an outcome, <laughs> and we'll see. Like there's a reality check that comes right away. Uh, you know, in in this in evaluation disagreement for between a player or between a team and a pending unrestricted free agency, come July one, that argument will be settled one way or another. Anyway, let's talk about the game tonight. I want to note something interesting. All right, Canucks are barely underdogs tonight. Right, like the Devils are. Barely favorites, according mm-hmm. to our friends at Play Now. I know you have it up in front yep. of you. What's it the... is the Devils on the money line are minus one fifteen. The Canucks minus one hundred five. So basically a pick 'em. Basically a pick 'em. Extraordinarily slight favorites. So the market or Vegas anyway is not quite yet buying what Lindy Ruff and the New Jersey Devils are selling. I would say, right? They haven't confirmed their starter. By the way, they had all their goaltenders leave the ice at the same time during morning skate. Incredible. Good stuff. <laughs> Incredible. Good stuff. I really like that. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see who they're starting. Maybe I just that- picture them, like, awkwardly walking down the hallway together in all their gear so that nobody's going first. <laughs> no, no, giving no information away whatsoever. Sidestepping? Yeah, sidestepping <laughs> down the hallway in their gear. <laughs> kind of like the, um, you remember those, like, duck soldiers in the fifth element? Kind of like that. Yes. You yes, know what I'm I talking know about. You mean. I yeah. do know what you mean. Sweet reference, bro. Everyone knows your references are sick, Drance. All right. Going to stop talking in the third person. Um, yeah, so I think that's a fair bit of respect given to the Canucks for two straight wins. I also think, you know, Vegas is probably pretty skeptical about the New Jersey Devils rise. They're not buying it the way I'm buying it. And fair enough. You know, this, this team has done this. This is the third consecutive year that the Devils have won at least six of their first Mm. 10 only to fade dramatically. So I guess it should, I shouldn't be as surprised as I am. But you know, if you uh, if you buy if you buy the Devils glow up, this is a pretty tasty price. Yeah, as I said earlier in the show, I don't see any kind of glaring signs of oh, this isn't for real from the Devils. And again, not to expect them to be this kind of world-beating, elite five-on-five possession team all year. Like they're up there in the neighborhood of the Carolina Hurricanes. Maybe they will, but I'm not. But the thing is, they can regress a little bit from that and still be really, really good, right? Like, I'm not seeing any of these red flags that you would normally look for and say, uh-oh, I don't think this team is really going to be able to sustain this. Again, look, the goaltending is always going to be there. That's always going to be a question. Um, I would expect both the the Devils and the Carolina Hurricanes to regress. Sure, yeah. In they're not going to of... be they're, – they're at incredible rates right now. <laughs> they're not going to stay there. But the Devils could easily yeah. be, like, a top-five team in terms of puck possession. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean – it's uh, it's pretty amazing. It's it's pretty amazing what we're seeing from some of these well, teams. I'll say this: they're not going to outshoot their opponents by an almost two to one margin. No, no, no. <laughs> Every game for that, the rest of the year. That's, that, that's a not little much. That's a little much. Although they might need to to make the playoffs, based on the history of their goaltending. Uh, so you know the best teams in terms of controlling play five on five this year, right? You talk about the Devils. You talk about the Hurricanes. You talk about the Florida Panthers managing to do it despite the absence of Aaron Eckblad and the loss of Mackenzie Weger. Yep. Wildly impressive. You talk about Calgary. 
right? You talk about Boston. Connor Clifton crushing it. My guy, Connor Clifton, finally having the glow up that I predicted for him before the expansion draft. Big things coming from Mason Appleton now, too. What about so, Lane Peterson wants one of your guys? Lane Peterson wants one of my guys, yeah. I mean, well, that very was a, briefly on Twitter. <laughs> that was a lower-end call, but yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I'm taking the L on that one. I'm not even holding out hope the way I am with Appleton. Anyway, um, you know, the Rangers, the Kings, the Colorado Avalanche, right? Like, these are the best teams at controlling play 5-on-5 five five in the early going. What do they all have in common, Jamie? Really good defensemen. A lot of really good defensemen. Turns out it helps. <laughs> it helps a lot. You just need it. You just can't control play 5-on-5 five five anymore without D that can move the puck. Well, and you just look at the Devils how their defense sets up, right? And, you know, obviously Dougie Hamilton is the big, splashy free agent signing. We all know what he can do offensively. They go out and get John Marino. That was a very popular Canucks trade speculation target over the summer. Damon Severson, a guy who has, you know, I've certainly seen plenty of, you know, Canucks trade proposal, mock trade proposals of, hey, that's a right-hand defenseman who might be available. Could they get him? He's on the third pair. All of a sudden. And like, I like Damon Severson. Yeah, I think he's, he's a pretty good defender. He's fourth on their team in overall ice time. Yeah, and all it's of a wild. sudden you've bumped him way down the depth chart. And so you're looking at it, and again, Dougie Hamilton, the offensive star. But outside of that, outside of that they don't necessarily have that kind of superstar defenseman. But they just have a lot of depth. And you're in this position where you can take a guy like Damon Severson. I mean, if Damon Severson was on this Canucks team. It would be like, oh my gosh, they found the partner for the long term partner for Hughes. They're going to play him like twenty five minutes a night. Seriously, it would. I mean, people would think that, but sure, Severson for me is more in the like Myers, Evan Bouchard, like big top four defenseman. That's quietly more of an offensive guy than a defensive guy, in my view. Right? There's a sort of a class of top four defensemen that that uh, that you know that I put him that I lump him in. Uh, Myers would be among them, right? Like because of their size and because they do play physically. People assume that they're defensive yeah, defensemen, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in fact, their best skills are offensive. activating from the point and or and or carrying the puck through the neutral zone and or making that first pass, what have you. So you know, Severson for uh, it for me is in that class. It just stands out though that pending, been able pending UFA to, by the way that they've been able to increase their depth so much. Where uh, like again, you can have the critiques of his game or whatever, but a player that a lot of teams would love to have in a top-four role, right? And, hey, okay, yeah, we've improved to the point where now he's on the third pairing. And I think, as you said, a lot of the teams that you were talking about in terms of controlling play, yes, it's about the high end, but it's also about just having that depth where you're you're not running guys who have extreme flaws in your game in their games out there for, like, you know, big minutes every night. You have the depth where there's always somebody pretty talented on the ice. Well, and the Graves-Marino pair, right? I mean, that's really been... You know, I talked about Myers OEL being sort of the secret driver of the Bruce There It Is Canucks, right? The Ham Hughes Bexa pair is something I often I often think when people talk about twenty eleven, one thing that's often missed is just how crucial the contributions of that pair in particular, right? I mean Erhoff and Edler were the better defensemen that season over the course of eighty two games. I think Erhoff was the only guy who played all eighty two mm. games. But uh but in the playoffs in terms of who got the mat, the toughs, and who crushed those minutes, Ham Houston Bexo were kind of the spine of that team. Right now, Graves and Marino. Marino, excuse me, are that for the Devils. And you know, acquired back-to-back summers from teams that needed to move them for cap reasons to accomplish other things. Right, a third and a and a good prospect, a second and a good prospect, 
And I wrote this at length today, and, and you can go check it out at The Athletic about the work the Devils have done rebuilding their blue line. And I'm not going to get too much into the weeds here mm-hmm. because we sort of talked about it yesterday, but, you know, that's like one thing I often get when I talk about my cash in hand theories and my sort of view of the of the primacy of cap space and in, in resetting a group quickly. Uh, you know, one one response we often get is it's not like a Devon Taves is available every summer. And you're right. But Orion Graves is right. A John Marino is every summer, every summer. And those guys aren't Devon Taves. No, they're not. But they're really good and they're really helpful. And with them on the ice right now, you know, like John Marino has been on the ice for eight goals, four, two against, five on five. Ludicrous, right? And there's some luck there. There's some good fortune. But everything about what that pair is accomplishing while playing Tufts is wildly impressive, wildly impressive. And that's going to be one of the things to watch. Here's another thing to watch tonight, by the way. Damon Severson and Elias Pettersson. For, I don't know why. I don't think there's any, like, actual animus between them or anything but they always go at it all right they always go at it i don't know why but severson always plays pd really tough and pd never likes it and always gives it back and it's always fun to watch so keep an eye out for uh the severson petterson grudge tonight uh yeah nate from comox uh texted in about the point about the uh the defenseman and the devils he says how is it possible we gave up a third and a second for dermot and stillman colorado got Devontae's and the devils got graves uh for a second and a prospect i think it was two seconds for Devontae's, but still the point stands and he says why did they refuse big moves go for the fringe guys the added up draft pick value uh is insane but for you, depth players that's but it's because you need Comox. it's because you need the money right i mean the canucks were saving the Leafs a bit of scratch with Dermot, but it mm-hmm. was, you know, 1.5, like pretty, pretty modest. You know what I'm saying? And and there was market for him. Um, They were saving the Hurricanes a bit of scratch, which is why they only had to pay a fifth for, for Bear and got them to retain once they took Lane Peterson's deal, right? Uh, so, I mean, the difference is when you're trading for Graves or Taves or Marino, you're saving the team four plus and in Marino's case, on a long-term deal. On, in Taves' case, on a long, excuse me, a long-term deal, right? So, if you can eat, or if you can solve problems for another club, they will pay you, right? If you can't, it's hard to pull off those deals. Very hard. Well, and you know, a lot. So much of the speculation with John Marino, it revolved around one of the Canucks surplus wingers or forwards, right? Like Brock Besser, Connor Garland. But to your point. That's not actually solving the salary cap problem for the for Pittsburgh, right? What they needed to do, they weren't trying to make that quote-unquote hockey trade. What they wanted to do was clear that salary off their books. Now, who knows? Maybe there was still a deal to be made with some sort of framework, and it didn't come together for whatever reason. But I think it illustrates, as you said, it's a lot easier to get it done. It's a lot easier to make deals when you have that cap space and you're not trying to convince another team to take back one of your salaries, right? When you're saying, hey, I, I hope you really like Connor Garland uh, because they might not. And that doesn't mean Connor Garland's a bad player. It doesn't mean he doesn't have value with other teams, but just different teams are going to have different evaluations of different guys. It's different with draft picks where every team is going to value draft picks a certain amount. Every team is going to be excited uh, to to bring draft picks in to the organization, right? Like it, it just it, it greases the wheels so much when you're trying to make those deals. We've somehow made it this far without talking about 
Jack and Quinn Hughes. I was just going to say, you're talking about things to watch at, at Patterson <laughs> and Severson. I was like, there really is no shortage of <laughs> no, deeply this, entertaining things to this watch This is tonight. a really interesting game. Like, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this one in a way that I don't always. You know, like, this one to me is extra fun. Now, Jack Hughes and Quinn Hughes have a bit of a different dynamic, I think, than, you know, we always want brothers to be rivals. <laughs> we always sort of set them up as rivals. And, you know, we're we're used to Henrik and Daniel who were so competitive with one another, mm-hmm. right? I mean, to the point where, um, you know, <laughs> to the point where uh, Henrik would routinely roast Daniel for the fact that he was born six minutes later, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that's that they're, they're competitive in everything, right? Daniel wants to beat Henrik in every race that they run now, right? The, it's just how they were. Uh, they were uh, competitive about the VO2 max, Right, like one of them wanted to beat the other one in terms of what is it like uh, milliliters of body fat per sure, whatever, right? Whatever. Like something technical by like point one or a tenth, you know. And they, <laughs> there's a more supportive dynamic between Quinn and Jack, like to the point where I bet you, you know, not that not that you're not going to see their best tonight, right? They both want to win always. They're of course they're pros, yeah, and they work hard and they push each other, but. You know, I bet you if left to their druthers, they wouldn't have to play each other. You know, like, I think it's I think it's almost a distraction more than something you're, like, that adds fuel to the fire. Something they're licking their chops about, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it's, a, it's a, an interesting thing because they really are sort of each other's biggest fans. They watch each other's games. Um, you know, there's a deeply supportive uh, relationship there. Uh, they root for each other outright, outright. And uh, and anyway, it's fun to see them play, but you know, I, I wouldn't expect like fireworks <laughs> going no. off between the two. There's also just, I mean, they're they're both just such phenomenally entertaining players no, in their own so right. Much and fun. I mean, especially, you know, oftentimes when it's a brother on brother matchup, like it's like, oh, this guy's a center and this guy's a winger, and you know, well, maybe there'll be a scrum or two or something. But how much you're actually going to see? But you know, there's a good chance we'll see Quinn Hughes. Defending Jack Hughes in transition, right? Trying to prevent Jack Hughes from gaining the zone, trying to take the puck off him, and the way they play the game is both—it's so unique for both of them, and their skating ability is so exceptional. Uh, again, there's no shortage of, of things to watch for in tonight's game. It should be a really good one, and the battle between the Hughes brothers is right up there for me. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Final segment of the show coming up. Get your thoughts and questions in. Uh, hit us up. Let us know what you're thinking about. Anything on your mind? We'll weigh in on that. In the final segment, we also will hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux and his comments to the media uh, ahead of tonight's game against the Devils. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. What's going on? Final segment of the show on Canucks Talk on another Canucks game day. We're live at Rogers Arena. It's myself, Jamie Dobb, my co-host, Thomas Drantz, uh, where the Canucks will take on Jack Hughes and the New Jersey Devils. Tonight, 7 o'clock puck drop. I believe it's on Sportsnet 360 tonight. Had a texter who's having trouble finding it on TV. So there you go. Check out 360. Uh, And, of course, full pregame coverage here at 6 o'clock with Satya Shah and Dan Riccio. Batch and Randeep will have the call, and then Bick and Sat with your postgame coverage on Sportsnet 360. 50. Lots more uh, to get to. We've got some good questions coming in. But first, let's hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux addressing the media earlier today ahead of tonight's game. Well, it's, it's you know, 
It's always great when you have have to have to make some hard decisions. Sometimes um, it makes it hard on coaches, but that's that's what you'd rather have than than easy decisions all the time because you had uh, don't have enough guys or you don't have the right guys. So uh, we're finally getting a little bit healthy, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, they'll be oh, you know okayed by the doctor, and we'll see what happens tonight. What are you able to tell us about your lineup? Well, there's, it seems to me like they're all game-time decisions right now. I mean, they haven't seen the doctor uh, uh, right now. They'll all come down for warm-up, and we'll see where it leads. And that's the three IR guys? Yes. Hughes, Besser, and Stillman? Hughes, Besser, and Stillman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bruce, on your, on your back end, might we see Ethan Barrett play tonight? Yeah, you will. Okay. Uh, any other changes on the blue line? I don't know. We would, we'll see. I mean, I, wait till the doctor... Talks to them and uh, whether okay's them or doesn't okay them. How has uh, Kyle Burroughs acquitted himself in your view? He's done great. I think he's a, I think he's a, a competitive guy that, you know, uh, and I talked to him in a meeting yesterday. You know, like I mean, for a guy that's played in the minors most of his life, and then to come up and make the team last year, and then this year uh, come up and just do what he does and. I mean, he's not used to playing 22, 23 minutes a game, but, I mean, he gives it everything he's got, every shift, uh, uh, you know, whether he makes mistakes or doesn't make mistakes. It's how can a coach not like a guy like that that just, you know, that he lays it on the uh, on the ice every night. That's it. Do you expect Brock to join the lineup at some point this week? I expect him to join the lineup at some point soon. I don't know when it'll be. Do you get the feeling... I know Quinn's a professional, but you get the feeling when you get to play against your brother, there's a little bit something there as well. I don't know. I've never played against my brother. <laughs> you have to ask Quinn. But I'm guessing that he had this certain bonus caliber. You have to ask him. I don't know. There is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux, who, for the record, has never played against his brother. <laughs> Hearing that one towards the end. <laughs> Travis Green vibes. <laughs> ducking, ducking the question there. Ducking the question, indeed, from Bruce Boudreaux. Oh, those are some brief yeah. thoughts, including uh, just a couple of health updates from Bruce Boudreaux, including uh, that he expects to get Brock Besser back soon. <laughs> Wouldn't say this week. Uh, simply soon on Brock Besser. Technically a game-time decision, but as we said, off the top of the show, uh, you know, was out uh, – getting the extra skate with the probable scratches, Jack Rathbone and Kyle Burrows. So would not expect to see Brock Besser on Quinn Hughes and Riley Stillman. Certainly seems like they are trending towards playing in the game tonight. Uh, 650, 650 uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, this one said, uh, uh, what what happened to last year's win the week mantra? Uh, is that still a thing from Bruce Boudreaux? And I mean, yeah, I'm sure that's probably come up in the room. I think, you know, it, it, it's different when – I think the the energy is always going to be a little different, Drancer, when you were the coach as the hole was getting dug, right, versus the coach coming in after the hole uh, has been dug. And I think we've certainly <laughs> – you know, seriously. No, no, when you come in and find a hole, yes. it's very different than then, when you are in the hole having yeah. dug it yourself. And I think yes. that is that explains, you know, we've <laughs> we've already seen some different energy from Bruce Boudreaux this season than we For did sure. at any point last year, right? Because he's more fully a part of this and of this situation than he was at any point last year, There's right? a different level of ownership, no question. I also think, you know, you come into a season with expectations, right? And then – Win the week was a way, I think, for Bruce to instill belief in a group that had none, right? Now, 
it's like we're a good team the whole way. We didn't deserve this. We, you know, we built that on that positive momentum from that Columbus performance, right? I mean, it's a totally different tactic and environment all told for this club. So they don't need to win the week. That's the message of desperation. That's a message that, like, guys, this is still possible. This is still possible. You know, when you're when you're two five and two, <laughs> you know, you win the week, you're probably in a playoff spot, right? Like right. you're back in the wild card. You don't. The, the pressure is different. The dynamic is different. So I think that's probably why it's a it's a totally different approach and refrain here. Uh, this this text came in as well from Rager. Came in a couple of times. I wanted to read it. He says, uh, "If you need help being convinced that on a Bo Horvat trade, then last night's hat trick from Tage Thompson is a good example. As Drance always says, you can win a trade you lose. For years, everyone said that the Sabers lost the Ryan O'Reilly trade." Now the dividends are paying off for the Sabres. And I know Jeff Merrick made a similar point uh, on his show earlier today as well. We had Merrick on uh, earlier. Tage Thompson, obviously, with the big night, having a big year after last year's big year also uh, for the Buffalo Sabres. And I thought that was an interesting text uh, from Rager just saying, yeah, you, you know, you got, sometimes you have to be willing to take a swing. You have to be willing to make those tough decisions. It might not pay off right away. But it can pay off down the road. Look, I've got some weird Tage Thompson takes. You'll be shocked to learn. Um, I'm so so shocked to learn that. One thing, one thing about Tage Thompson that struck me when watching him play the Saturday. Like I often think about this with another uh, prominent, oversized Buffalo-based athlete in Josh Allen. Where like I watch Josh Allen on a football field and he doesn't move like a normal human being. Like yeah. he looks, he moves like a like a heavily CGI Marvel superhero. Like they Chris look, Hemsworth cutting through the forest yeah. in. You know, whatever movie. He looks like he breaks the rules of physics in a way, right? Where it's just like, that's yeah. not, that shouldn't be possible. You shouldn't be able to stiff arm a 300-pound lineman like that as a quarterback. And Tage Thompson kind of feels similarly. Like, you know, I always used to think when guys like Joe Colburn were getting hyped or like whatever six foot seven center prospect everyone's mm-hmm. drooling over is getting, you know, widely, their praise is widely sung. I always used to think, you know, I bet there's a reason why there's never been a Hall of Fame six foot seven centerman. Like I bet you there's a reason why most of the best centermen in hockey are like 6'1 to 6'4, right? Like in that range. I wonder if there's a cap on how tall you want to be to actually be super effective in the middle of the ice. But then Tage Thompson comes along, breaks my whole worldview. <laughs> but he moves about the ice like a superhero. It's crazy. It's it's honestly wild to watch him play. That's my quick Tage Thompson take. Yeah, he's uh, he's like really really good. He is really really good and he's having a, an exceptional year. Uh, for the Buffalo And he Sabres. showed up dressed as Gretzky? You he, saw that? No, he didn't, actually. <laughs> he didn't? No. That was just a good Michael Farber tweet? tweet? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Oh, man, that was or such Ken, a good tweet. I think it was a Ken Campbell tweet. Ken they Campbell. talked about this at length on the morning show. Okay, good. Produ- he didn't producer, actually do it. Yes, producer Andy Cole. Also believed this. Yes. So me and Andy Cole are the most gullible people <laughs> yes. on the 650 airwaves. Good yes. to know. And Halford and Bruff were aghast that he had, in fact, actually believed. How? Absolute musical theater kids, me and Andy Cole. Makes yeah. sense. Um, there you go. So you guys both uh, both got duped uh, <laughs> by that one. Humiliating. Another one that came. Uh, Should have kept my mouth uh, shut. Lots of questions about uh, Bo Horvat here coming in. Chet and Burnaby says, uh, I've always been surprised by how low Dom Lucision's model rates Horvat. What drives him down so much in the model's eyes? I don't know if you have any thoughts or guesses or insight into exactly what the the model, the much-vaunted model, sees uh, or doesn't see as the case is in, in Bo Horvat transfer. Iffy 5-on-5 five five profile. That's it, right? Like, 
the model doesn't weight the fact that Horvat often plays toughs, right? The model doesn't ca- doesn't the model doesn't care for difficulty of competition, right? So you'll often see uh, puck moving third pair guys right. a little bit overvalued stuff like that. The model doesn't weight that Horvat's ability to come out even at five on five in toughs is actually a positive, right? And the model doesn't buy Horvat's elevated shooting percentage. So the things Horvat does well, the model doesn't care for, like being clutch, <laughs> shooting an elevated percentage, uh, and and battling toughs to a to a draw. That's sort of the Bo Horvat calling card right there. Faceoffs, right? Like the the things that Bo Horvat crushes and does well, the model doesn't weight very highly. Whereas the model highly rates guys who drive play five on five, even if their sort of bottom line results aren't aren't quite the same. Model obviously is going to struggle with measuring defensive impact too. So the model's super high on a play driving, rate stats, all star winger like Connor Garland. But you know, at the end of the day, if you have to win a game tomorrow, who are you picking first from from along the uh, the school wall? Like on on your team, are you p- picking Bo Horvat or Connor Garland? I don't think there's a lot of hesitation, or should be anyway, in the hockey world. And you know, I say that as someone who's also really high on Connor Garland. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of summing it up. And I think that accounts for a lot of the, you know, as much as there are criticisms of Bo Horvat's game that are totally valid, obviously, like any player. Like, as I was saying earlier in the show, the things he does well are very, very highly valued by a lot of people around the NHL. For sure. Right? A lot of people have no problem buying into the value in Bo Horvat. And, you know, one of the other points I was going to make is, as you said, look, the, the team and the player have a disagreement about what his value is. If, if he gets the free agency, we will see who is right. We will find out exactly what that value is. One of the reasons, you know, you go back to the spring when we were ha- having the talk about, oh, are they going to trade JT Miller? What's that? What's going to happen? One of the reasons I was always very, very confident that Bo Horvat would be re-signed is it's just so rare for a player of his profile to become a free agent. Mm-hmm. It's so rare for that to happen, for a captain, a long-term captain of a Canadian NHL team, you know, drafted and developed by that uh, by that team, a center. He's only going to be 28. It's not as if he's going to be 31 or 32 when he hits unrestricted free agency, right? With the goal-scoring cred, all of that. Like, it's just so rare for that player to actually become available. I didn't really think it would happen. I still don't know exactly what to think about how it's going to go down, but because he has that rare of a profile, if he does hit free agency, I think he's probably going to win the argument that, 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 is, that him and his representatives are having with the Canucks right now. Probably, like he's probably going to do – there's going to be a significant market for his services. I, I, I tend to agree with you, and you know we'll see how it goes. I mean, you're right. These players don't often make it to unrestricted free agency, and oftentimes it'll go – even if it goes to the wire, they end up staying. You think about the Sedin twins. Like, I was sure all through last year that that's how it would play out with Klingberg and the Stars, that ultimately right. that would get done. And I was stunned when it didn't. Like, stunned when it didn't. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how this shapes up with Bo Horvat, but I, I tend to lean with history here, right? Like, I tend to lean with history, which is players like Bo Horvat don't often shake loose. They don't often shake loose for a reason. We'll see. Uh, we'll see if this story has a different ending. I, I think, you know, it, I. To me, it would feel like an, an an indictment. Like it would have to be Bo Horvat being like, "I think I got to go elsewhere." I, you know, I just I think he's so settled here. I think mm. all things being equal, so long as they get into a, a realm where it's market value, I, I find it difficult to imagine Bo Horvat wearing a different 
color jersey. Like, I just find that hard to wrap my brain around. I do, too, and I've been really consistent about that point. Like, I would have guessed beginning of training camp, well, we'll they'll announce a deal. Oh, well, I, I mean, I'm, I remain shocked based on the organization's own thinking about the matter that Miller ended up getting done first. Like, I'm stunned by that to this day. You know, at no point this summer would I have expected that. I would have bet heavily against it if, you know, I was able to bet on hockey and there were odds priced out for which guy signs first, right? I mean, that was a stunning, you know, I don't want to say reversal because that's probably putting it too firmly. The club always sort of wanted to do Miller, right? They were always, at least behind the scenes, the club was always pretty consistent. Like, yeah, we want to get that done. But behind the scenes, the Horvat talk was like, you know, we want to turn the team over to him, right? So to have lingered for as long as it did during the summer and then for the push to have instead come to sign Miller and Horvat still lingering unsigned at this point, you know, that was unforeseeable in my view. You know, even talking to both sides and their expectations in May and June, like, I, you know, honestly, honestly, my mouth's as I, as I think about the last six months and how they've unfolded, like, my mouth's still agape just, just sort of considering it. It's so outside of what, you know, I think everyone expected in terms of how this flowed, how this went down. And, and I think for me personally, I'm still having trouble kind of wrapping my head around the fact that it has gone this way and kind of digesting the new information and adjusting what I think is going to happen. Because as you said, I just have such a hard time believing that they're not going to find a way to get a deal done, right? That they're not going to find a way to keep Bo Horvat around. It's really tough for me to wrap my head around that. And yet I look at everything else happening with the team, and I also can easily say it's really hard for me to wrap my head around them extending him. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, then finding and them finding common ground on an extension that makes sense for him, from his perspective, with yeah. their salary cap situation. Like I'm in a place where I can't really wrap my head around or foresee either of the potential outcomes right now. Well, this is one thing that I've been thinking about a lot. You know, you go into the offseason and you've got a lot of work to do this summer, right? I mean, that's the thing about this team is it takes a lot of work to disassemble it, but it also takes a lot of work to keep it together. Like, it's going to require a lot of diligence. And honestly, it's going to require trades just to stay the course. Like, this is what happens to win-now teams which make no mistake is how the Canucks are positioned based on the contracts that they have on the books, the volume of picks that they've sent out and the volume of sort of expiring deals that they've got. You think about the RFAs now numbered Dermot, who if he returns could play big minutes on this team. Let's be real. Right. Ethan bear. If he hits, he's going to, he's going to get prohibitively expensive quickly. You've got Niels Hoaglander who, if he plays regular top nine minutes here, I mean, he's going to have a case to make $2 million for sure. He is for sure. Then you've got Horvat. He's going to require at least a, a million and a half raise, at least, right? Probably two. That eats into your space. Andre Kuzmenko, my goodness, is that guy making a strong case to earn, you know, a three million dollar raise at least, at least this off season? And by the time you've added added it all up, you know, you're you're like, okay, well, you just to keep all of the deals that I sort of enumerated leaves you with, you know, Myers and Pullman. <laughs> and Bear and Dermot and no space to sort of change up the defense without making significant change changes, right? Like, unless you can shed multiple salaries, it's going to be really hard to change this group. It's going to be really hard to change this group and keep it together. It's going to be really hard to just keep it together. Yeah. So, 
you know, this is sort of back to the point that I keep hammering on that I don't want to keep hammering on necessarily because I want to be, I want to have a little bit of, um, I want to have a little bit more variety in my repertoire, <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, it does but, sort of point to a team where, I mean, I, I find it difficult when I forecast what's next, when I forecast the long term to understand how this group's better next season when all of these, you know, pieces get more expensive and none of their bad money comes off the books. You know, it's really difficult. Like, that's sort of what I keep saying about with the Miller contract, right? Is like, this could be the best team that they have in, uh, you know, in, in this Miller era that they've now committed themselves to. It's going to be really hard. You know, OEL gets another year older, right? Horvat gets more expensive. Miller gets more expensive. Then the next year, you've got Pedersen to pay. Mm-hmm. And everything gets tighter and tighter all along. Granted, you have Myers expiring at least, uh, and and Pearson too. Once once you have to pay Pedersen, he's not going to eat into all of that, but he could eat into a fair bit of it. He could definitely eat into Tanner Pearson's entire expiring, and that again leaves you with very little space. Even the cap going up can't really save the team from what I see as as sort of an inevitable difficulty, getting both better and cheaper at the same time in a league where that's nigh impossible. And the thing is, you know, you bring up Myers and Pearson. We had somebody text in towards the end of the show yesterday. Like, don't those guys become a lot easier to move come this summer, right? When they're going into the final year of their deal, I think in at least Myers' case, there'll be a signing bonus that's paid out. So The, the answer is yes. The answer is 100% yes. I guess my question would be, is it – but but is it how much easier and are you actually okay okay you can trade Myers well are you actually getting rid of six million or are you retaining some or are you taking money back yeah. or if you are getting rid of all six million are you giving up an asset to do it what's your appetite it's undoubtedly easier but it's not as easy as boom there's there goes six million off our books what's what's hard to do is trade the full freight of Myers's deal this summer with a valuable future coming back like Myers for a second that's the home run trade that you probably can't find. Yeah. Right? That's where it gets complicated. I mean, sort of, I think the Canucks even encountered that with Miller, where teams were like, well, we need you to take two and a half backer. So, you know, I mean, it's really hard to move money. Uh, and if you are moving full freights of contracts, the returns suck. It, yeah. it impacts what teams are willing to pay. Again, it's not that teams are coming hat in hand to you to solve your problems. You have to find ways to solve theirs in a way that benefits you over the long term. And, you know, it's an incredibly complex league now. An incredibly complex league, and one where the rules, the guaranteed player contracts plus the hard cap, you know, in my view, really make it incumbent on an organization to choose between the present and the future. And, and you know, I do think that this is, we've reached a point where you have to embrace the cycle, in my view, if you're going to win cups in this league, if you're going to be a championship team, if, even if you're going to be a durable contender. You have to accept that when your window's closed, you're going to go down, and you might as well go down with a purpose. And you've got to accept, too, that when you've got a chance to win, as Rutherford did so well in Pittsburgh, right? The thing I always praise him for. Mm. All in, baby. Like, like, there's no reason. One of the well, Again, I say this a lot. One of the biggest mistakes of the Gillis era wasn't the guys they drafted. It was that they made four or five first-round picks during this franchise's best chance to ever win a cup. Like, all of those picks should have been players that could have helped the team extend the window for an extra year or two or, or help them win a round or help them in the fateful moment. And, uh, you know, that, that that's it. Like, that's how this works. you got to be more aggressive than teams are at the top. you got to be more aggressive than teams typically are at the bottom. And the worst place to be is where this team kind of has been stuck for a while 
And for me, I can't figure out how to, I, I can't figure out, Oh, I can't, first of all, I can't see the signs that this team is sort of putting a jetpack on their back to launch themselves out of the sludge. But also, I don't really know, I don't have like a perfect action plan for doing it either. All I know is that when you're in the middle, that's oh, tough. It's that's real, death. It's really tough. And, you know, we've got a couple texts coming in here saying, well, you know, they want to keep Bo. What about trading Besser, right? This one, don't you feel like Rutherford and Alvin would rather have Horvat at 7.5 than Besser at 6.65? I feel like they'll do what they can to keep him. That's potentially very true, but they also, you know, they gave Besser that three-year deal, and we'll see what the trade market looks like for him if they think it's going to be uh, a valuable deal. There are other paths to doing it. If you look at guys like Besser and Garland but opening look, up a little bit of cap flexibility, sure, look at the returns. Like, are That's you? The I mean, at the end of the day, Besser and and Garland are really good. Are you willing to eat the Bjorkstrand deal or worse than that? Like, are you willing to do Besser for a fifth? You know, plus taking a two million dollar one year contract back. Are you willing to, eat, you know, do Garland with retained money for a third, right? I mean, the options, the cost of moving money is so painful. And yet, you know, when I talk about the need to begin, and this is what I did in that piece talking about the devil's blue line. When I talk about the need to begin to make the moves that position you to make needle moving trades as opposed to frittering around the edges, trying to, you know, gamble on some Siegenthaler clones, right? Some guys who could be if they hit Siegenthaler types for this organization in Bear, in Stillman. Well, you know, it, it starts by carving out cap space, and the only way to do that is to lose a bunch of trades, some ugly trades, ugly decisions, really hard ones. Before we go, the Vancouver Giants have an exciting pre-sale opportunity for the Kubota CHL-NHL top prospect game at the LEC on January 25th. The pack includes tickets to the White, Spots Legend, White Spot Legends Night that is on November 18th against the Kamloops Blazers. You also get tickets to the November 30th Giants game against the Moose Jaw Warriors, which features a top prospect Braden Yeager coming in with Moose Jaw, and you get tickets to a top prospects game that is not yet on sale to the general public. Visit at VancouverGiants.com slash tickets. That does it for us. The Hockeypedia cast with Dmitry Filipovich is up next. We will be back tomorrow. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.